O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Let us bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. So this evening, God, as we close this, your Lord's Day, we ask for your, special, your spirit to be with us, Lord, to draw us nigh unto you and to each other, God, we pray. In your name alone, amen. This evening, God above, again, we are thankful for this, your day, a day of rest, a day to be with God's people, a day to hear your word, a day, Lord, we pray for your special blessing upon us. We ask God in particular, Lord, for your continued mercies through Christ Jesus to be upon us and upon your church. We pray for the growth of Christianity in the churches of America, God. We ask, Lord, that you would be with them and draw them unto you, Lord, that they would be more faithful, that they would desire more of your word and more of Christ, that they would desire a life of holiness, Lord, both individually and collectively and as families, God. We ask that you would give them faithful pastors and shepherds uh, over them, under shepherds under Christ Jesus, Lord, to protect them from wolves and to feed them the word of God. We ask, Lord, that you would be with the members, that they would feed therein and they would grow thereby and they would uh, submit to the leaders to the extent that they are faithful to the word of God and always submit to Jesus Christ and stand firm upon your word. We pray, Lord, that they would, Lord, your churches in America, the many churches that we've had and have here in the city of Denver, the light God, that they would be faithful uh, to your word, both respect to the gospel and the law, Lord, that they would have a life of holiness, although certainly they will fail at times, God, but your grace is sufficient to cover them, Lord, but may they have that zeal, and may the churches help them grow in that zeal towards holiness, to stand upon Christ Jesus the rock and not stumble upon him as the stumbling stone. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray for your continued love upon us as our intercessor for our sins. We ask, Lord, that you would Help the churches grow in America and here in Denver and Colorado, Lord. Help our church grow. Help them be faithful to your word. Help, we pray, and protect them, uh, Lord, from those who hate the church, who hate Christians. And so we pray also for Christians in their jobs and their livelihood. That they would not be um, smeared and lied uh, by those who hate us and what we believe, Lord, and losing their jobs, as has already happened to some Christians, God. Be with them, we pray, and we ask, Lord, that you would be with us Throughout the week, that we would be faithful to you and do our duties and callings in life, God, that we would work hard as unto the Lord. We would take care of the things you've blessed us with, God, we ask. And we pray, Lord, for your continued mercies day by day, and that we would not be discouraged, but rather be encouraged, because we are here with you, and you have given us your word, and you've given us your spirit. And so, God above, we ask that you would also be with us in education, that we would grow and learn your word, that we would instruct our children, our children's children, in the word of God to memorize parts of the Bible, Lord, and to know where to go in times of difficulties and times of rejoicing, to read your Psalms, to read your Proverbs, to read your Gospel, to read your history and the Genesis, uh, Lord, and to do this all our lifelong days. Help us, we pray to that end, God, to be faithful therein, to pray in accordance to your word, and to sing in accordance to the truth of your word as well. We ask, God, that we will continue to grow in sanctification and in love and the fruit of the Spirit, God, one day at a time. Help us, we pray. By your spirit alone we pray. Amen. Let us pray. We thank you, God, above again for the opportunity to give tithes and offerings for the work of the Church of Jesus Christ. Uh, Be with these tithes and offerings, God. Use them and guide them in your special providence for your people and give us wisdom in the distribution thereof. In your name alone we pray. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion 
a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. He who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. Let us pray. God above, we are thankful for these words that remind us of your grace and mercy shed abroad upon our hearts. That God, you have worked in us so that we stand upon the word of Jesus Christ, who is precious to us as the stone, the chief cornerstone in our lives. And you've protected us, Lord, from being those who stumbled at the scandal that is the gospel, the rock of offense. We pray, precious God, that you would preserve us in our standing and deliver many, Lord, who have been offended, that they would not be eternally offended and cast into hell. In the name of the Lord, we pray. Amen. Many people, as you can imagine, like the metaphor of Christ as our rock or stone. It is a comforting picture, a wonderful picture of Christ as a stable foundation of our life as Christians and the life of the church. In an age of uncertainty, the certainty of Christ the rock is comforting indeed. But that same image that comforts some disquiets others. That which is secure and immovable for one is a crushing stone for another. That which is the foundation and basis of a stable life is instead the basis of death and judgment for those who stumble at the scandalon of the gospel. This is the other side of the preaching of the gospel, of Christ in his ministry, a stumbling stone of offense to unbelievers. Let us see how this is the case. But first we have more or less what we like to hear, the good news, that there is also contained in Scripture, in Zion I lay a chief cornerstone, elect and precious. And so we have here a reminder, first of all, that Peter appeals to what? In verse 6. It is contained in the scriptures. He appeals to the word of God. We heard about that this morning, about the Bible being the word of God, the word of God that gives us the gospel, the word of God that gives us the law as Christians. And Peter believes that as well. He takes the word of God seriously. He quotes the Bible because he believes that's where we learn about God's will for the life of the church. Not from our feelings, not from our emotions, not from anywhere in this world, but rather in the God-breathed word of the Bible as we read in Timothy this morning. Peter believes that, and he bases his argument here, or rather his encouragement and his warnings and admonitions here in these verses upon the holy writ of God Almighty. It reminds us of the importance of the Bible in the Christian life, where we learn about Jesus and his salvation for us. We learn about the Holy Spirit. We learn about the Holy Trinity. We can defend the gospel and the church and the Christian life and understand what those entail by going to the Bible and applying the Bible to our lives. It guides us in a life of holiness. The Bible is important. We are people of the book. Tradition has its place, but it's always subservience in the church of God to the Bible. And Peter here, in applying it to us, applies not just any part of the Bible, but like, again, with Timothy, which part? The Old Testament. He's reminded, as you recall, Timothy was reminded by Paul, you were given the gospel of hope from the Holy Scriptures that you grew up on. Well, he only grew up with the Old Testament. He didn't have the New Testament yet. And here, Peter is quoting the Old Testament and applying it to the situation today. Now, as you recall, Peter describes the authority of the Bible, the Scriptures, as everlasting. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. 
The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And that was earlier in chapter 1. And this is why he can apply the word of God, because it does not change with the winds and the winds of time, with the latest political fad or the latest philosophical fad. It is always eternally applicable and relevant because it comes from God who knows his people, who knows the creation that he made and created the word of God such that it is always applicable when needed. Now the passage that he's quoting, showing us by example how to live as Christians, to read the word and to apply it in our lives, he's quoting uh, both Isaiah and Psalm 118. Isaiah 28, 16, we went over that last week as you recall because he referenced it earlier uh, in passing, coming to him, verse 4, A living stone, you also as living stones being built up into a spiritual house, alluding to the fact that Christ is the chief cornerstone. So Isaiah 28, 16, we read, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes in him will not act hastily. Psalm 118, verse 22 we read, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. In both cases, he's clearly referring to Jesus Christ. Christ, which is but another name for the Messiah or the anointed one, was prophesied of old. That's why Peter can apply it and Paul can apply those passages. They're clearly about Jesus and these metaphors, these word pictures describing who our Savior is and what he is for us. Unpack that a little bit here, that Jesus Christ is our chief cornerstone, he is elect, and he is precious. As a chief cornerstone, of course, that is, he is important, significant, again, with the imagery of a cornerstone, which is what? The measuring of the foundation of a building. You set that there, it squares out the foundation to make sure the rest of the house is square as it lines up with the basis of, in this case, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the basis of your life and the basis of the church life as well. And it's the most significant. Without it, the house is crooked, and will eventually fall upon itself. And we see that in the apostate churches. that do not have Christ Jesus as the foundation of their living, but they have the traditions of men or their own vain philosophies instead of Christ and him alone as found in the Bible alone. And so Christ, therefore, is the most important part of our salvation. Without him, we would have nothing. Without Jesus as the chief cornerstone, there is no foundation for salvation. There is no church. There is no us this evening. It's not Jesus plus you equals salvation. You didn't want to be saved until Christ touched your heart. And so when I say Jesus is the chief cornerstone of your life, that's what I'm talking about. Not just doctrinally, but also practically in terms of being in union with him. If he did not give us the spirit to wake up our hearts, we would never have cared about being saved to begin with. And so Christ, without him, there is no salvation. That's exactly what I mean. That's exactly what the word of God means. He's elect, that is, he's chosen by the Father. Uh, Do not forget that Jesus did not anoint himself when he was on earth. John the baptizer anointed him, as you recall. John the baptizer was the son of a priest, exercising the priestly function and baptizing uh, Christ for his special mission. Christ was very, very clear. The Father chose me. I'm here to do the will of my Father. He didn't pat himself on the back. He didn't elect himself. The Father chose him. That's what this is talking about, to be the Savior of his people, to be your Savior. Acts 4.11, we read, again, by Peter, the mouth of Peter. So this is a theme uh, resonant with Peter's heart. 
This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there any salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's Peter preaching to the Jews, telling them that Christ is cornerstone of salvation, and he was rejected by men, but chosen by God to be our Savior. And we see that, of course, in the life of Christ in the Gospels. Clearly, his own people rejected him. Supposedly, they should have been the builders, and they were the kingdom of God, or at least a manifestation of the kingdom of God at the time. And ironically, they rejected the very Messiah that they were looking for. They convinced themselves, that is, the, the many of them, we don't know how many, lots of them, but many, of course, were saved. Thousands were even saved. Rejected Jesus Christ, and thus the stone was rejected by you, but he became the chief cornerstone of the new manifestation of God's kingdom, the New Testament church. Us today. He is not only the chief cornerstone, he is not only elect, he is precious. I think that's pretty obvious. Christ is precious to our hearts. He's priceless. Nothing compared to the value of Jesus and the salvation of our souls through his blood. His blood is precious, brothers and sisters, that he shed for you and he shed for me. And he is good news to us. We see him as the rock of our life, the foundation of our living, and precious because of that all the more. We know in him we move and breathe and have our being. Without him we have nothing. That's precious indeed. And so we cling to him. We cling to him as the most precious of all things, more precious than our very breath and life itself. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. And he's a precious stone for believers. The second point, the precious stone for believers. Verses 6 and 7, right? We read here, chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. And so he applies it there in particular, that Jesus is not just precious in the abstract, in that passage in quoting Isaiah, but it's precious to those who believe in him and trust in Jesus as their foundation, and no one else. To other people, as he will pick up in verses 7 and 8, rather Christ is an offense to them. But to who we who are believers, we find him precious indeed. Notice it says believers. Not doers, although we are called to be doers, to be sure. We're not called to be spiritual couch potatoes, sitting on, at home doing nothing, but we're called to follow Jesus, as we heard this morning, by following his law, although we know we will fall short of obeying the law in perfection. But we always return back to Jesus, our great deliverer and savior, and he is precious to us because we believe in him. It's believers, those who trust in him. Remember the Jewish background, Peter grew up in that environment with the Pharisees who were a very strong sect, we would say denomination today, that said, hey, you want to get to heaven? Try harder. Work hard. Or you won't be justified. You won't have the warrant for heaven. That's not what was taught in the Old Testament. That's not what Christ teaches. That's not what Paul teaches. That's not what Peter teaches. And so when he says, believers, and he's quoting the Old Testament, reminding us again, even in the Old Testament, they had to be believers who would eventually do something, of course. They're going to follow Jesus, even if they fall down in their life often, like David fell. But it begins with trusting or believing in Jesus. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. He is precious to us, brothers and sisters, because we believe in him and him alone. Jesus saves us by faith. We are saved by faith in Christ alone. And he just says that in summary fashion, by calling us those who believe. We are believers Trust and belief in Christ Jesus is what sets us apart from the world. People can try to follow Jesus. Remember the rich young ruler? 
You apparently wanted to follow Jesus, not by believing in him, but by doing more stuff. I've done all this stuff since I was a kid, he said. And Jesus, knowing his heart, said, you, you think you've really followed me, huh? Let me show you how much you're not really following me. Give up all you have. Will you really follow me then? That's what he was telling him, that it's about really trusting in me and not being obedient enough. He came as a humble man saying, save me, Lord, help me, help my unbelief. As we read in Mark 7, the guy crying out because he's so humble as opposed to arrogant. Trust and faith in God is an act of humility of a heart broken by him. We are called to repentance. We are called to obedience, but it's always in the context of believing in Jesus working in our lives, brothers and sisters. And that's why he's precious to us. Because we know we don't have to obey enough to be justified enough. Once we trust in Jesus, from there on in, forever, we are always justified. Our trust will never change because we have the Holy Spirit who gave us that gift of faith. It is here expressed as an act of mercy, an act of grace. And that's why to we who, who believe in Jesus Christ, he is precious indeed. For we know we have salvation in no other but him. He is a precious stone in these two ways. There's other ways to describe it, of course. Christ is precious stone holding the church together. The people of God, of course, are the temple of God, and Christ Jesus is the chief cornerstone of that temple. And the imagery there, like in Ephesians 2, the end of chapter 2. And it's a common confession in the church of Christ Jesus. We have unity with brothers and sisters we've never met in Africa and South America. If they too confess Christ, and he is the chief cornerstone for them as well. If they believe, and we believe, we are all believers together. And Christ is precious to the entirety of the church. Not just you individually, but you and your church. Not just your church individually, but your church in collection with other churches. That's why we believe in the unity of churches as Presbyterians. That we should strive to show and express that externally what we have internally in our hearts. Christ is a precious stone not only for the church corporately, in terms of a confession, a common belief, uh, but also our individual lives. Spiritually, we are united by faith to Christ himself. He is the head, we are the body. That is the intimate union that we have with him, and he indwells within us. We have the Holy Spirit empowering us, strengthening us, giving us conviction, again, through what? The Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, because that's where we learn about Jesus and the preciousness of our Savior. We are justified by faith. We are sanctified by faith in Christ Jesus. That's how he is precious to us, brothers and sisters, and all that we have in our Christian life. The fruit of the Spirit Conviction of sin, the Bible, all that comes from Christ and given to us as our reigning Lord and Savior. And he gave gifts to men, gave gifts to us in the church. This is why he's precious. Now, sadly, he's not precious to everyone. This is a hard doctrine, but it's here in the Word of God, and so we must preach it. Verses 7 and 8, we read, But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. That same stone or rock that is the sure foundation for your standing in him, they stumble over it. They trip it. They're they're falling all over it. And it's not a stumbling. The imagery here is not a, a picture of, oops, it was an accident. I guess I'm going to hell. I'm going to hell because it's an accident. Because I kind of tripped and fell and stumbled. That's how we use the word in common parlance, right? I, I tripped, I stumbled. No, no, no. That's not what is going on here at all. It's the same rock, but two different responses to that rock. Note, for instance, that they stumble what? Being disobedient to the word. They reject the word. They hate the word. They rather run away from the word. They are offended. That's what the word there is. 
There's two different words here of stumbling and of offense, a rock of offense. That other word you're familiar with, scandal. Christ is the scandal to these people. Get it right from the Greek. He scandalizes them. This is, this is crazy, they think. This is so offensive. We talk about, you know, the president or a famous person, the great scandal that he was in because he's with another man's wife, although it's not much of a scandal anymore, I, I, unfortunately. But it's worse than that. This is a religious scandal to these people. Christ is not a sure foundation for them, a sure footing, but rather they stumble and falter in life after they are confronted with Christ. Before hearing of the gospel, they walk through life oblivious, not tripping, at least in their mind they're not tripping and falling. Everything seems fine, perhaps, for a while. But when they hear Christ, they hear the call of the gospel, the unbelievers, those who reject him, are offended at the message of the cross, the rock of offense, the scandal on. Christ and his claims are too much for these people. This reminds us there are only two responses to the gospel. You either believe it or you don't. That's it. There's no, well, let me think about it for a bit. Christ calls people to repent then and there. He says, you cannot serve two masters. If you're trying to serve me, but still say, well, I'm still not sure yet, that's a man double-minded in all his ways and is unstable, as we read about in James. That's not a person who's following Jesus. You believe or you don't believe. And this reminds us, Stark contrast or the antithesis between light and darkness, between believers and unbelievers, between followers of Christ and those who flee from Christ. And these who stumble at the rock are those who flee from him. They do not want to submit to Jesus Christ. They do not want to believe in Jesus Christ. They do not want to follow Jesus Christ. Rather, they balk at Jesus and his call of repentance. They hear it and say, I don't want that. That's not the life for me. Follow him, carry my cross. I don't want that gospel. I want the easy gospel of sweet words and an easy life. Jesus, however, is a scandal unto people, to those who are disobedient to the word, to the preaching, to the Bible, to all of that. They are offended in various and sundry ways, of course. Some are offended by Christ himself because he claims to be God and man in one person. They say that's a crazy belief. I don't want to believe that. Many others don't want to follow Christ's demands where he says, follow me and give up your life of pleasure of seeking your own desires. And this reminds us, then, of what the church should be doing in part of its ministry of preaching. The church should preach so clearly that people see Christ as the rock. What they do with Christ between them and God, not the church. And if they stumble, the church should not cower back, fearful in its preaching and proclamation of Christ Jesus, and say, oh, I'm sorry, we hurt your feelings. Christ didn't do that. Paul didn't do that. Peter didn't do that. I mean, Peter called them a bunch of murderers. Remember that? Next two? Wow! They will stumble. But if the offense becomes the right kind of offense, that is, they are crushed by their sins, the rock of the word of God of Jesus Christ crushes their sins, and they see it, and they cry out for mercy. That's the kind of crushing you want. That's the kind of stumbling you want. This is, unfortunately, the wrong kind of stumbling. They fall on their face. They're offended. They say, this is terrible. I don't want to stand here. I don't want to follow Jesus. I don't want this sure foundation. I'll find my own foundation. The church should not change its preaching because we're afraid of offending people. It could probably be argued if you don't have some offense somewhere, maybe preaching isn't clear. Being offended because you told the wrong kind of joke. Being offended because you spoke too loud. Being offended perhaps by your clothing. Those are things maybe we could fix, maybe we can't fix. But being offended by the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel that calls people to repentance, a life of repentance, to hate the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to submit to him and his word, you should not apologize for that at all, brothers and sisters. 
You bring Christ, you preach Christ and him crucified, as Paul says, and let people decide what they're going to decide. It's sad to be sure, because we're, we're reminded here that many people, and again, we do not know hearts, we do not read minds, people can be offended for a while and then come back. I've heard yet another story of people going to church, not liking what they hear, and they come back. Grumble about it, leave church, come back again. And eventually they stay. That happens. So we're not saying anybody who stumbles, who falls, and is offended are therefore reprobate. Because this is what we have here. They, to which they also were appointed. They stumble, being disobedient to the word, to which they also were appointed. The word appointed there is quite interesting, at least to me, because the same verb used for Christ, that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. I lay down, I lay there, I, I, I choose this, and I put it here. In this case, God chose them and put them elsewhere. Those who are disobedient, they're appointed by him not to be part of the structure of the temple of Jesus Christ, but rather destruction, a temple of destruction and eternal torment. And we know this. There are similar ideas in the New Testament and many other passages. In Jude 1.4, for example, we read, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying our only Lord and our Lord Jesus Christ. It reminds us that God doesn't have to save everyone. And the fact that he saved us is a wonder to behold. That's why he's precious to us. There's nothing requiring God to save anyone. That's offensive, isn't it? I'd say that's a scandal on, but it's simply what the Word of God says. It's a somber doctrine to be sure. As you remember, in Adam's fall, we sinned all, to summarize Romans 5, for example. That judgment is the default state of mankind, condemnation. And God has blessed us that we have not stumbled. They were disobedient to the word. They stumbled at the word. Perhaps the word is the good news, or the word of the requirement of Christ to carry your cross. All of that, or some of that, it does not matter. The disobedience, there is, that is, the refusing to submit to Christ Jesus, is evidence of a hardened heart. They stumbled at the foundation stone. 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold and silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's works will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work for what sort it is. Now, this is talking about Christians who have Christ Jesus and this foundation that they laid, that is Christ Jesus. Anyone builds on this foundation, Christ, with silver, they add other things on top of it, that will be purged, and they'll be saved as through, as through fire, it reminds us. But the disobedient here, those who stumble, they don't have Christ as the foundation. They have simply a foundation of wood, hay, and straw, of precious stones, of reputation, of pride, of lusts, whatever that is, and it will be consumed. If it's true for Christians, which is what 1 Corinthians 3 is talking about, we have Christ, and we add bad things on top of Christ, but we still have Christ, we're still going to heaven. It's true for them that it will be snuffed up and consumed by fire. How much more for the unbeliever who has rejected Christ, period, which is sad indeed. People hear the gospel and will not submit their lives to Christ, and it's sad. It can be heartbreaking when it's family members. They're happy in their sin. It's offensive to give up their sins, to repent and trust Jesus. They stumble upon him rather than stop and rest and plea upon the rock of Christ Jesus for mercy. The question, standing or stumbling? Do we stand or stumble? Do our friends stand or stumble? If we embrace Christ as the rock, the chief cornerstone who is precious to us, if we believe in him, God is faithful and true 
to forgive us all unrighteousness. But if we reject Christ Jesus and wish to atone our own sins our own way, do our own thing, then we have stumbled and fallen. And I pray that falling has not been permanent. Let us pray. Gracious God and Savior above, we thank you for these words, these somber words, of course, at the end that remind us that there are those who stumble and stumble permanently. They will never, ever give up. They'd rather go to hell than submit to Jesus Christ and stand upon the rock and call him precious. It's hard to say that, Lord. And again, we don't know who that is. We can't read hearts. Although, Lord, we see some people who are so hardened in their sins, we wonder. Lord, as they still breathe, we can still pray for them. May we pray, God, and not give up praying for those near us, we pray in your name alone, to bring them to the rock, not of offense, not of scandal, but the rock of salvation, the chief cornerstone, elect and precious for those who believe. Amen and amen. Now the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.